I wonder as we think about things like smart growth and sustainability, if we've given adequate consideration to just economic subsistence of people. If we are proposing some policy that's good for the environment, have we really thought through exactly what the economic implications are for somebody and how are we going to offset those economic implications? To me, if it is an inflection point for the sustainability movement, it's we need to move in that direction. We can't just think great technology and a green economy is enough. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we talk with thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. This is your host, Mike Hancocks. My co-host today is Kif Scheuer from the Local Government Commission, Associate Director of the Local Government Commission. Climate and Energy Program Director. Thank you, Kif. And our guest today is Julie Seward, Principal of the Julie Seward Consulting Firm. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. So, Julie, tell us how you got interested in working in resiliency, sustainability, community equity. I became involved in this many, many years ago. In fact, a career ago, 30 years ago, as I worked in community revitalization. And I began to understand 15 years ago that the work that was being done in neighborhoods was really important if you looked at it in a very holistic way. And that's to say that you can build many houses, you can improve various and sundry pieces of communities, but if you don't put all of that together, you never find those places that are really vibrant, and they become good quality of life and a place that anyone wants to live. And at that point, the smart growth movement was being born. And because of the work that I did at the national level, I saw the players that were working around that, and Local Government Commission certainly was one of the key players in that, and understood that there was a great connectivity between the work that was going on at the ground and the work that was going on around smart growth. And so from that became almost a passion for me in thinking about how you build sustainability and how you build smart growth into the work that's going on inside uh, neighborhoods as a part of communities, as a part of regions. And that, over the last five years, has almost exponentially become something that this conference very much prioritizes, and people that work on the ground are beginning to understand how sustainability really relates to the work that they're doing. Excellent. That's so great to hear that context and background. I'm curious, as somebody who's been in this work for a long Mm -hmm. time, If you could, in two parts, sort of tell us what are the biggest successes in the smart growth movement Mm -hmm. and the biggest challenges that remain that we should be turning our attention to? Well, I think the biggest success in the smart growth movement, in fact, is there is a smart growth movement that is understood. And smart growth is now a fairly accepted frame of reference for people. If you had asked people a decade ago what that means, certainly there are of people who had understood that, but many people would not have. I think there's huge success, and the people involved, local government commission and other people that are involved in smart growth should really claim great credit 
for having really created something that has become a common word for people in the, in the United States. Sustainability is now a part, I think, of the way most people think about the work they do. Certainly not that way a decade ago. So I think in some ways that's the greatest success. It has become an integral part of the way people think about their lives. I think that as we look toward the future, perhaps one of the critical issues is thinking about, in fact, how smart growth takes what it's learned and moves it to another step so that there are not a lot of unintended consequences that come from, quote, smart growth, because it's been around long enough that we've begun to understand and practice this is what it looks like, and we need to make sure that we don't have unintended consequences of that in communities. So you may have in a neighborhood something that is dense, is mixed use, is mixed income, but in fact, does that at the end of the day become equitable? Is it something that really doesn't cause displacement? Is it something that accommodates a good way of life for everyone? We're learning that, I think, as we go. And I think that's one of the challenges. And I think in this year's conference, you really do see in the number of sessions that are here that that's something that people inside Smart Growth understand, and they're trying to understand, you know, think about, here's where we need to go next step, level two. Based on your experience, do you think we're taking up on Kiff's notion of kind of where are we as a movement? Where is the smart growth movement? Are we at some kind of inflection point? There's the smart growth movement. Mm-hmm. Then there's people who talk about sustainable development. Mm-hmm. Then there's people who talk about equitable development. Mm-hmm. And now resiliency has mm-hmm. become kind of a, a topic. Yep. Do you think we start to confuse the public by having so many? Are, are those things all interconnected? Are they pieces of the same thing, and are we confusing the public by having all these different subtopics? Well, I think sometimes we even confuse ourselves. (laughs) Yeah, I think in many people's minds they are the same thing. I think that people assume that if you are a smart place, you are a resilient place, and that means not only do you deal with some type of disaster well, but also do you deal with the stresses that are inside your communities. So in my mind, I guess when I hear the word resilience, I love the word itself. I think it sort of says what it is. But how that gets connected into and used in the same context of SMART, I don't think we clearly know. But, you know, many people would say that SMART growth is no longer perhaps the best way to describe what we're about. So maybe resilience is becoming the way we describe that work in the future. I don't know that now. But I think it's very formative at this point. And it is in, t- in point. I, it is an inflection time. And thinking about that, I mean, I think there are certain issues that become more a part of the dialogue because of the resilience framing or, or even the sustainability framing, particularly equity, I think has been a part very much more so recently. Mm-hmm. Climate change is this factor that wasn't there at the beginning, of, in, at least so commonly. And it's definitely a big part of resiliency. How does that shape who is involved with this work? and how and the roles that they can play? Well, I think it it certainly means that you're always looking for more people to be at the table. And I think it particularly as you look at equity, equity is sort of a word that, as my father would have said, you can drive a truck through. It means many different things to many different people. But I think that people that are trying to work around equity issues now, a lot of that conversation has is moving toward economic inclusion as a way they like to think about equity uh, as we move forward. And to me, there's a great connector between that and sustainability and resilience and how that's something that is afforded to everyone. 
and it's how is is that something that in fact can apply to all communities in a, in a very inequitable way? Because when you're thinking about equity or economic inclusion, it's just not about individuals. It really is about cities and towns and some places that have recovered and some that are recovering and some that really struggle. And so that whole concept, I think, of economic inclusion becomes something that could well, potentially, certainly could cover a lot of that work that's going on among all those actors. Interesting. Another aspect of it that I see is that some of these challenges are much bigger than any one jurisdiction. And I think the smart growth movement has been more jurisdictionally bounded. And how do practitioners start to engage at the regional state Mm -hmm. level on some of these issues when you're dealing with something like managed retreat or climate refugees, these really mega influences that may go beyond your immediate boundaries? You know, it's, I, I, and I don't know the answer to that question. I, that's really a tough question. And I think that that's something that the smart growth movement, if you want to use that term, has been grappling with for a long while. I suspect people inside that, and you would say, we don't, we've not figured that one out yet. But I do think that there are pieces of that, particularly as they relate to equities we were just talking about, that become really interesting. So, for instance, if when you talk with people who know much more about this than I do, but if you look at issues like displacement and gentrification, what we really do understand, or our researchers began to understand, is that there is a great difference between post-recession cities and pre-recession cities. And the dynamics and the movement of people that live particularly in poverty has tremendously gone across jurisdictional lines now. And what might have people might have thought was concentrated in core urban communities is now moving into suburban communities. And so the whole pattern, the whole concept of uh, displacement, where those people are going, what it means for those jurisdictions, is an important one to consider. And I use that as an example because I think it begins to show that people are continuing to think about how you take the context away and make it more regional and almost mega-regional. And that, I think, is encouraging that you do have people that are beginning to think in those ways. So when you talk with someone about gentrification and displacement on a regional basis, that's not something you would have heard five years ago, for sure. But it is sort of a new way of thinking about how you think about regional solutions. And it does bring more people to the table than perhaps the smart growth movement, who are the people that were sort of the core of that traditionally. You know, if I think about the smart growth movement, I ask about equitable development, sustainability. People like Van Jones talk about the divide between the environmental justice community and the environmental community. Right? So I think that the Smart growth movement is the envi- and the sustainability movement is the environmentalist community. The equitable development is the environmental justice community, mm-hmm. right? And now, I, now there's kind of a third player on the field, right? Now we see in America for a very long time we had policies that created inequities, a lack of opportunity, despair in certain urban communities, and we had a response to people using drugs that was criminalization of those drugs. Now we've got this dynamic where we're becoming much more of an urban and coastal economy. Two-thirds of the economic output of the United States was generated by counties that voted for Hillary Clinton, and a third of the economic um, output of this country was generated by communities that voted for Donald Trump. So now you've got this dynamic of you've got these rural, predominantly white areas that are now also being affected by policies changes, whether technology changes Uh, energy policy changes, clean power plants, you know, carbon policies, whatever. 
And now you get this kind of third player on the field in terms of, you know, we're having problems, we're having struggles, we need to deal with those. So it seems to me like we're at this kind of big inflection point in that the conversation we have been having, we haven't been able to merge together the equitable development and the sustainable development people quite as well as we would like to. And now you've got this other issue of kind of urban, rural, thriving economy areas of the country versus non-thriving areas of the country. How do we start to weave that together? How do we start to get the people who are in these rural areas of the country to see that they have a lot in common with the people in the urban core areas that are not doing as well economically, as opposed to that they're, they're completely a different set of problems and issues? Is that a reasonable question? Um, it's a big it's, question. It's a really reasonable question, and I don't know that I have the answer to that. I think I would say to you that I think that uh, just by force of changes that are occurring, that we certainly there is more conversation about what's happening in suburban communities linking to urban communities, our, our core city communities, simply because the issues that urban communities for many, many years addressed are now found in those suburban places. And so you're almost moving into exurbia, and I think that is a very positive movement. How that relates to rural America, and I'm not even sure how you define rural America anymore because you have many what were very rural towns that are not now a part of those exurban communities. How that relates, I'm not sure. And I suspect that maybe that has something to do with some of the political dynamics that are going on right now. And I think regardless of where you sit on any, any, on any political spectrum, that policies that work uh, around that are very unclear at this point. And I think one of the questions is who will be the actors that can begin to really pull themselves to think about some very creative policies that address that. I think it was interesting um, over the last few months, as people have talked about the word city, there are very different perspectives on what even city means to people. And if you apply that out to very large places that now exist in, in suburban communities, does that differ from what you think of in the core city and, and how that relates even to those smaller places? I'm not sure. But I will say I do think there are a lot of people beginning to think about that rural perspective on it. No answers that are there that from my, that I know of and as people talk. Well, and another aspect of it that I think about, and I'm glad you brought up sort of the economic imbalance between coastal urban areas, because there's, you know, there was some language that Paul Ryan used, I think, gosh, quite a while now ago about makers and takers, right? Mm -hmm. And he was referring to, in some sense, social services, social service nets. But there's actually a very big argument that you just made about makers and takers being urban and rural, coastal and what have you. But there's also a resource argument that goes the other way. We are the takers in urban areas of upstream water, agricultural products, forest products. And there is this disconnect where there is an extractive economy that is drawing in. And so how do we bridge that back too? It's not just about flipping attention and policy to restore rural areas. It's about recognizing that it, under a stressed climate, some of our upland areas are the most valuable resources we have, protecting Absolutely. the watersheds, protecting the forests. And I wonder, we're just having a conversation, thoughts you have on that side, too. So, this does not answer a question, but... If what, <laughs> we're beyond answering questions. But, but I, I think what I wonder about is, because cities are returning, and have returned in some instances, you really do have this core of people who have come back into communities that are younger, 
uh, I think, really do care about the environment. They really do care about sustainability. And I wonder whether that means that as we look in the long-term future, they are becoming the leaders that may be able to help us identify and think about what some of the answers are around that because they come from a very different perspective. I think, you know, I could speak because I'm older, sort of my generation of, of leadership that's there that never ha- were not born with some of the sensitivities that you see there now. But I think that's a very positive signal for the future to have people that really, as my daughter, who's 36, will tell you, I never want to live anywhere I have to drive a car. That's a very impressive thing to say, I think, and it really does both show the success, but also it shows the mindset and the values that I think will shape the future in thinking about some of those those questions. I think that was make, a division. You know, the makers and takers thing is um, that's all political language, right? I, yes. I, I see it more in terms of the you know opportunity people who have real opportunity in the economy to participate in the economy mm-hmm. versus those who have less of an opportunity mm-hmm. and you know historically we've had these you know communities inner city urban communities where economic opportunity was driven out for a variety of reasons but now you've got now you've got these larger dynamics so you've, again you've got these outside forces and policies that created lack of opportunity in certain parts of the country and you've got maybe a different set of policies and a different set of dynamics that's creating a lack of opportunity in another part of the country. And those two groups of people tend to have more in common with each other because they're on the outside of the economy, yet they, they're not seeing themselves as being similarly situated in any way, shape, or form. Right? They see themselves maybe more on the opposite ends of the right. spectrum. And so I wonder, as we think about things like smart growth and sustainability, if we've given adequate consideration to just economic subsistence of people, right? So if we are proposing some policy that's good for the environment, have we really thought through exactly what the economic implications are for somebody and how are we going to offset those economic implications? And I think that that's, to me, if if it is an inflection point for the sustainability movement, it's we need to move in that direction. We can't just think great technology and green businesses and and a green economy is enough. We need equity. We need people to have equitable opportunity to participate in the economy. And to me, that's the big, the big challenge right now. And I disagree. And I think that sort of goes back to some of the earlier conversation, which was about economic inclusion. And that sort of being where people are focusing their attention now. And that is a place where I think you're beginning to see the divide. But I would say to you, um, just interestingly, I was just in a, a part of a, a session that was looking at urban economies and what the, the people that do this well and are the real experts will tell you that the urban economy never actually ever went away. It's a misnomer. So there was a vibrancy there inside urban areas that we haven't acknowledged, and it clearly has not been a part of, I think, the way the smart growth movement has thought about the work it's doing. That's not a, a statement of being derelict. It's simply a statement of that sort of being something that's acknowledged and understood as we we move forward. But uh, I don't know. If, if you're looking at a, a, a schematic or a, a picture of a city now and compare that to what it was 10 years ago and you look at what sustainability has done, you're going to see dramatic, I think, shift inside that. But you're also going to see that inside this new picture, there are all kinds of questions and details inside that you'll think, oh, I never really thought about that. And, and maybe that's what that inflection point is right now. And Again, I think that's one of the things this conference really tries to be about, 
is thinking about that inflection point and where those points are that need attention and providing a space for people to actually acknowledge and think about that. It's not to say the answers are there. It's just to say, hey, folks, how do we put our minds together around this? Julie, unfortunately, we're out of time. I'm delighted that to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, and your work also. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time on Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infiniteearthradio and Twitter by following at infiniteearthradio.com.